Hi, I'm Trip. I spent the first part of the 21st century as a film snob, rejecting any sort of mainstream comedy. And I'm Ross. I'm slowly, film by film, taking Trip through the films he sadly dismissed or smartly avoided until now. Welcome to A Trip Through Comedy, a podcast examining studio comedies from around the turn of the century. Trip, our exit today has us entering spooky season. And fight. And it has us fighting off our own demon possessed right hand. Today's film is Idle Hands, written by Terry Hughes Burton. No relation. Nope, not at all. And Ron Milbauer, and directed by Rodman Flender. The film centers on Devin Sawa's Anton, a 17-year-old stoner who spends all of his time smoking weed and watching television. He has no ambition other than to hang out with his two friends Mick and Pnub, played by Seth Green and Eldon Henson. He pines for the girl next door, Molly, who is played by Jessica Alba. But strange things are happening in their hometown. A serial killer seems to be on the loose and is killing random citizens. Anton is shocked to discover that not only are his parents two of the victims of this killing spree, but that he happens to be the killer. Well, it's not entirely him, as it seems that his right hand has become possessed by an evil spirit and is causing all of the murders. Things become even more complicated when Anton's hand kills Mick and Penub. However, Mick and Penub decide to come back to Earth instead of going to heaven. The three of them then try to stop Anton's hand, which Anton has now cut off of his body. In the end, the group, along with the druidic priestess named Debbie LeCure, played by Vivica A. Fox, are able to defeat Anton's hand before it can ritualistically sacrifice Molly's soul to hell. So, did this movie tickle your fancy, or did you want to banish it back to hell? <laughs> um... I don't know, Ross, because I watched this movie and I still really have no grasp of what this movie is trying to do. Like, I know that I wasn't tickled too often. Um, I also wasn't bored a whole lot, but it, it's a strange movie in that I could never quite figure out what the tone of this movie is. Is it supposed to be a spoof, do you think? I think so. I think it is intentionally trying to do i saw several kind of reviews from the time mentioned stuff like evil dead 2 which Mm -hmm. is another movie in which our hero cuts off his own hand when it becomes possessed and has comedy involved in it it definitely is trying to make quote unquote jokes and i think it's also violence is done in a way that is meant to be so over the top that it's ridiculous. But I feel like it never actually goes far enough to actually be a spoof of anything. It kind of like halfway spoofs the genre, I guess. I think the question is, what is it actually, as you're going to say, what is it actually spoofing? I think it's just kind of making a horror movie that doesn't take itself very seriously. Yeah, no, I I completely agree with that, but it just... So it felt really weird. Like, half of it felt like it was spoofing something. The other half felt like it was trying to actually be like a genuine kind of buddy comedy, stoner comedy 
slasher film. And in the end, it just, it fell really flat for me kind of throughout that there wasn't a lot. I wasn't bored, but there wasn't a lot that was sustaining me throughout it. To me, it feels very breezy. I don't think it has, it's not trying to make a statement. It's not trying to like, other than, I guess, don't be lazy. (laughs) <laughs> like, I guess that's what it's going for. But it it definitely, I agree with you. I didn't feel bored. I didn't feel that this movie dragged, necessarily. It mm-hmm. moves pretty quickly. Yeah, I mean, it's a, sh- it's a short movie, and it's it's a slasher film. So, you know, it, it goes through the motions pretty quickly. Absolutely. It, it, it was interesting. It, it was interesting. So, um, after watching it, I was doing some digging about something else that we could talk about later on. And I found an interview that Seth Green did in 2007 for the AV Club with uh, Tasha Robinson. And um, it was when AV Club, do you remember this? They used to do like the interviews would be one question about like every role that they had ever done in their careers. And I went through it all. And so she asked him about Idle Hands and he seems very ambivalent about kind of the production of the movie. But he complains about this himself that like everyone was making a different movie, right? He says that he and Devin Sawa and Eldon Hansen thought that they were making like a comedy drama relationship film. The director wanted to be making like a giallo film. The writers thought that it was Heather's. The studio wanted it to be Scream. And so it all becomes kind of this this mess along the way. And that enforced what I was feeling while I was watching the movie. That is not an incorrect, I think, read mm-hmm. of this. It's also a movie that, when I kind of heard about this, for some reason thought it was an MTV film, and it's well, not. it looks just like an MTV film. I mean, it it has all of the chaotic, those opening credits like look just like anything that was on MTV at the time. Oh, yeah. It feels like an MTV film, but is not. I think also, before we get too far, we have to kind of talk a little bit and put into context a bit about this movie, because Mm -hmm. it does bomb hard at the box office. It doesn't do well, but mainly this is because this movie comes out April 30th of 1999. Notably, 10 days earlier, is the massacre at Columbine High School. And this movie kind of takes on a thing in pop culture that it gets swept up in of a criticism of Hollywood at the time of being too violent, kind of promoting a lot of these things. And this is a movie that does take place, its climax takes place at a high school in which a teenage high school student does kill other high school students. Yeah, and if you're you're around at that time, like it was the last thing right after Columbine that you wanted to be watching, where teenagers kind of kill each other, even in a a funny comedic way. Um, And I, I completely agree to the point that it was interesting I was flipping through um, Brian Raftery's book, Best Movie Year Ever. Have you read that, Ross? I have not. It's it's so good. But he goes through all of 1999, and he has a whole chapter about the teen comedies, talks about 10 Things I Hate About You, talks about She's All That. He doesn't really spend a whole lot of time on this movie, but he puts the whole chapter in the setting of Columbine, right? And the fact that like, because all these movies were made before, they're the last pre-Columbine movies even though some of them don't come out till afterwards. But he does mention that at the premiere of Idle Hands, so in that 10-day period, Sarah Michelle Gellar is there and gets pretty rudely asked by the press about how, you know, did Buffy cause the Columbine shootings? And she goes after them and says, you know, it's not fair to blame us for this. But 
it what it was permeating everywhere because we all wanted right you want a reason why you want someone to blame right and so you know marilyn manson was to blame or the matrix was to blame or buffy was to blame and it was all over the pop culture at that time and i can see where this movie could be swept up in that very easily yeah i mean and this movie was kind of marketed as this comedy but also had you know the the violence and horror elements are definitely front and center to this and so especially with it so fresh after mm-hmm. like again within 10 days and I, I there was probably discussions had at the studio like do we release this do we not release this now do we delay do we move things and they ended up mm-hmm. keeping it where it was again it, it definitely seems to have had an impact on its box office because of that especially because i think if you want to look at all those different movies people were trying to make i think it almost works better as a slasher than anything else like the kills of this movie are fairly creative and entertaining there's some that i i really enjoyed right like in a slasher sort of way there's the girl who gets sucked up into the fan that i thought was a clever one i'm not quite sure how the hand kills the principal but whatever that movement was that it made uh, was entertaining, you know, and yeah. even the way that he kills Penub and whoever the other one is, um, is it Mike? Um, Mick. That's uh, Mick. Mick and Penub. Uh, even the way he kills Mick and Penub is is some clever, some clever construction there with that. They they are very creative, and it comes from the fact that the the director Rodman Flender, the movie he makes right before this, you were saying that there was kind of this they he thought he was making a Jalo movie. I mean. The last movie he made was Leprechaun 2, I mean, which is a straight up, you know, I mean, that's, I, I, I've never seen Leprechaun 2, but judging by that whole franchise, it's got a sense of humor to it, but it's a horror movie. Yeah, he's first. coming from the horror world, maybe, in this. Exactly. So, and so it's interesting. So Seth Green also in there um, talks about, the reason I found that Seth Green article was because I watched this on DVD from my library. On full screen DVD, I should add. The only thing that was in widescreen was the original ending to the movie, mm. which I watched, which is bizarre. It goes completely into the horror vein to the point that they open up a gate to hell that they are being sucked into, and hands are coming out of the wall and trapping people like, um, repulsion you know and uh it it goes very dark and then they changed it to something a little more lighthearted because people wanted something a little more lighthearted and seth green talks about that and so he was really trying to go for something more horrific and it just didn't play out wow i got and now need to look at this i did not i did not know about this yeah i don't know i'll look and see if it's on youtube and if it is i'll i'll link to it in the show here but um yeah yeah it is it is quite quite the bizarre ending there and takes place in a swimming pool rather than in the in the auto shop like interesting the, the interesting i mean i also i also heard that um another reason that they seth green claims they reshot it was because people were upset that jessica alba was not showing enough skin so they added a scene where she randomly gets her shirt ripped off of her <laughs> while strapped to the hood of a car sure, sure. and um i have thoughts ross that we're going to get to at a later segment so oh. i will I will hold my thoughts on that scene for uh, a bit. Of course. Um, but I was going to, you know, kind of talk about the, our main kind of cast here. So mm-hmm. obviously what's very interesting, at least also to me, is your three main people 
right? Devin Sawa, Seth Green, and Eldon Henson are all kind of child actors in some respects. They had been in the business for a while. You know, Devin Sawa is he's uh, Casper. He's ca- that's, he that's is all. He yes, is, as a junior as a junior high boy in 1995, that's all we knew him as was all the girls were in love with Casper. Well. You are obviously then not a fan of the 1994 classic Little Giants, where he is also in that movie and is great. Little Giants, fantastic. He's also in Now and Then, which uh, is a fun kind of mid-90s thing. But you have – so Devin Sawa kind of has that. Seth Green is probably the most accomplished of, of these three. Oh, yeah. A, a lot of credits going back to the, the 80s and 90s. And, you know, he's in Pump Up the Volume. He's in My Stepmother's an Alien. He's, he's in young Woody King's. Allen in Radio Days. That's Absolutely. that's what I would have known him from at this point. And Stephen King's It miniseries, which was obviously he's one of the, the younger, I believe he's the younger Richie in that. Mm-hmm. Um, and had just kind of recently done um, the the first Austin Powers movie. Yeah, uh, which... Which and you know we'll talk about the second one, which later this season that comes out this year too, and then Eldon Henson is part of the Mighty Ducks. I mean, he <laughs> he he does the Mighty Ducks movies. He's also in Turner and Hooch and Foxfire. But and I mean, was he's, just in She's All That. I can't remember if we mentioned him in She's All That. He's really sweet in yes. in She's All That, and he's really sweet in this movie too. I I don't know what happened to him that we haven't seen as much of him lately. Well, if I remember correctly, he was in Daredevil. He did the Daredevil show. Okay. He's he's Foggy Nelson. I more assumed that just Jesse Plemons took over his career and <laughs> that, like, because they definitely have have a similar look and could, they, uh, they could play some do. similar roles. Um, and all three of them are kind of in these the year before. Well, well I shouldn't say that because Eldon doesn't do as much in 98. He does a movie called The Mighty. But Seth Green and Devin Sawa are coming off of, in 1998, doing kind of well-known mm-hmm. um, kind of teen movies, right? Devin Sawa has a small part in SLC Punk, which uh, I recently saw for the first time, uh, an interesting teen movie there. And then Seth Green is coming off of Can't Hardly Wait, which is oh, a yeah. big movie mm-hmm. uh, in the 90s. And is also on, speaking of Buffy the Vampire Slayer, he's on Buffy at this point. Yeah, Dude. I think that's probably why Sarah Michelle Gellar um, and Allison Hannigan were both at that at that premiere, probably. Absolutely. So it's it's very interesting, and and you know you're talking about the horror things. Devin Sawa the next year is starring in Final Destination, right? Which is like a you can see kind of as a natural progression from this movie and doing the video for Eminem. He is the he is Stan in in the in the music video for Stan. So. You know the all these three of them. You know Seth Green obviously two years later is in a whole bunch of stuff, but mm-hmm. all of them are kind of these big child stars that are now kind of reaching their teenage years and are doing kind of bigger things. But also, kind of sadly, none of them are ever able to to really propel to that next level. You know, none of them kind of ever become the huge movie, and maybe that's because this movie doesn't do well, right? Maybe this was kind of the launching pad for the three of them that that they never quite get. But Seth Green's probably the most successful of them. He in is, terms but of Seth that. Green's never, you know, mm. gonna headline a movie, really. You know, no. Seth Green is not not the B or A list star that maybe people thought he was he was going to be. 
he basically became, which is, which by the way is very good for him. He became a very good, solid comedic presence in a lot mm-hmm. of like supporting oh, yeah. roles, and has. Had I don't want to. I don't want to put him down. No. I think he's he he he's an excellent presence. I always love seeing Seth Green. But exactly. I think Seth Green kind of always. We always kind of waited for him to take that next step, and he never really did. He became a solid character actor, which is wonderful because I like whenever he pops up in something. And he obviously has made a lot of money, probably thanks to Robot Chicken. At least in terms of these three guys, I will say, because they're they're a little too big to be in our, you know, kind of thing of supporting characters. I find the best part of this movie and the movie that made me laugh the most is Seth Green and Eldon Henson. They are just having a blast. Them at the dance is just hilarious. And just Eldon Hansen going to this dance, really excited to finally maybe like you know make out with a girl, and Seth Green kind of going with his head duct taped back onto him because his head has been cut off, so they've duct taped it back on, and it's it is very it's funny. I wish that the movie supported what they're trying to do more because the problem is. Like every time I started to really enjoy them, they're being undercut by five other people trying to make five different types of movies throughout yes. this. But um, so you mentioned there, right? They're the, the big three. You liked all three of them. Is is there a supporting turn that maybe you want to want to highlight here? Yeah. So the person that I actually picked for my supporting turn. You never fully see them on screen. That is Christopher Hart, who he is the hand. Mm-hmm. Eventually, when the hand gets off Devin Sawa, that hand belongs to Christopher Hart. Christopher Hart is probably best known as playing Thing from the Adams Family. Our movies. greatest hand actor. Yes. That definitely. He may be the only hand actor I know, but <laughs> <laughs> there is something to that because it does take a lot to do this. And this hand is kind of going around and has character to it. Mm-hmm. And it's because Christopher Hart is very good at that. And again, he's fantastic in the Adams family movies. Yeah. And I think a that's... magician by by trade, I think, and is oh. uh, like a magician illusionist and then has mm-hmm. has kind of found this little this little niche for him. Absolutely. I was curious how much of uh he did while he was while the hand was still attached to Devin Sawa too. Because you see a lot of times the hand in a separate shot than the rest of Devon Sawa. And I was wondering how much of that physicality is him or is Devon Sawa. That's I a, couldn't really find an answer. but That's a good question, because I will say Devon Sawa's performance in this is very physical. They have mm-hmm. him running around and doing all of these things yeah. that it does have him doing a lot. So yeah, I, I do wonder about that. But obviously, once it becomes disembodied, <laughs> yeah. you know, it definitely seems to be Christopher Hart and he's having you know, fun times doing whatever. Oh but, yeah, definitely. It's a, it's a great, a great little turn there. So Trip, what is, do you, is there a performance for you that really works as a yeah, best supporting th- turn? There were two that I was going to kind of highlight, but I think the one that really stands out to me is Vivica A. Fox, who plays uh, this druid priestess who, when we first meet her, is dressed as a nun um, and then kind of sheds that and, becomes just this druid priestess, but also bounty hunter who is chasing down the evil spirit that they never really explain so that she can get rid of it. She is horribly underused, as Vivica Fox tends to be in most things. But she gets, I think, a lot of the best lines in the movie and just delivers them with such gusto. 
and seriousness that these ridiculous things she's saying really pay off. That I think the biggest laughs I got were always from whatever her her reactions to things were. I, I, I couldn't agree with you more in the sense of she is woefully underutilized. Yeah. And also, even for a character that you think would provide you with exposition dump, right? Like, kind of tell you what's going on oh, here. The movie doesn't care about you understanding anything of what is going on in this movie at all. No. So, no. Yeah, what is no, the- but... What is possessing his hand? Is it the devil? Is it a demon? It's the, nope. We don't worry about it. Yeah, <laughs> ex- exactly. There, there's a great moment where um, they have until midnight before the spirit is going to jump to someone else, and Devin Sawa goes, "Well, it's only nine o'clock," and she goes, "No, that's not true." And you know the joke that's coming, right? That it has to be like twelve o'clock Eastern time, and they're on Pacific time, whatever. But she goes, "It's almost twelve o'clock." druid time and i don't know what that means but it made me laugh so hard because she commits a hundred percent and i really i i would have much preferred the vivica a fox hunts down evil hands movie i think to the stoner comedy that we get because she uh she is having a blast here well trip just to also throw out because uh there is a past uh, person who got our best supporting turn in a movie that you very much love. Oh, my buddy here. Joey Slotnick has has one line in here. I saw him pop up and I was excited. I was going to give him a second award and I think he has two lines and really uh, does nothing in this movie. But but it was seeing previous award winner. Go go back to Blast from the Past and see Joey Slotnick. I think you and I disagreed a little bit on that on that running gag, but in full commitment mode to that he is very committed in that movie i don't think we'll disagree on that (laughs) he is i think he is doing exactly you know what that movie is asking him for to do it also in a weird uh a fun little uh you know soundtrack corner you get lovely 90s moments of the offspring showing up Mm -hmm. and in a bliss blink and you'll miss him cameo is tom delong of blink 182 he is also at the same fast food restaurant as Joey Slotnick. Wouldn't that be a Blink-182 or you miss it? Yes, Cameo, Ross? correct. You, you correct. missed the pun there. I'm I know. Disappointed. I know. I'm <laughs> disappointed. You know, and, and as a big Blink-182 fan, it just, you know. Have we been keeping track yet as to how many of these movies just have random bands show up and play? Because, you know, we had 10 Things I Hate About You. We had this. Um, I feel like it happened at least once more. I feel like played. She's All That might have had a band it might have it had usher leading the the yes. dance so yeah i don't know that's a very big teen movie thing especially when there's like a a big kind of like dance it's yeah. like we're going to have the a band that we could do and the offspring just kind of somehow fit the vibe of this movie <laughs> like snot nose punk <laughs> and and our game for it because uh the the band gets gets killed by the hand oh yeah um, the lead singer d- yeah. it, it does not end well for him no so he yeah it is nice to see them uh them game for anything in here um what other funny moments do you have here though ross is there something that stands out to you as funniest moment of this movie Sure. So as I said, I, I did love, I, I thought about giving an award to just Seth Green and Eldon Hansen at the dance. The, mm-hmm. the, the line of, I believe that's necrophilia. <laughs> just, he's, you know, it's just Seth Green realizing like how terribly bad all of this is that Eldon Hansen is somehow like <laughs> with, uh, with a, with a woman. But I gave it actually to, cause it got me to chuckle a bunch. There is a moment where, 
Devin Sawa, after he has his hand has murdered Seth Green and El- Eldon Hansen, Devin Sawa decides to bury him the two of them and his parents by the way we didn't even mention that you know fred willard his dad for a hot second here in this movie if you want to know what this movie does wrong it's the fact that it has fred willard in the movie and in no way did we discuss him at the best supporting turn point like that should be a given for any movie with fred willard that he's automatically going to steal it and they give him nothing to do. Nothing. There's really nothing. But there's a moment. So he has decided to bury all four bodies in his backyard. And he gives what could be called a eulogy to them. And it's just basically Devin Sawa kind of trying to figure out what to what to say. And just kind of like, I mean, I'd like to think I was a good son. But I can imagine you probably think, you know, that things, you know, having gone well. It, it got me a, a good couple chuckles. It, it's, it's a good little scene. It skips over how he would have managed to bury the four bodies with one hand by himself. Like, that was the scene that I think I really wanted to see there. Because, I think, transitioning on, the physical comedy is when Devin Sawa is the best, right? Um, And so, right around that same section was my favorite, and that's right after he has figured out what his hand is doing. He's trying to learn how to deal with it. There is a lot of really big physical comedy with the hand, where he wants to go one way, the hand's pulling him the other way. Um, It reminded me of like Steve Martin's physical comedy a lot. I know we talked about that a while ago in out-of-towners, right? The the drunk Steve Martin and kind of that all-of-me type of body humor that he had in that. But um, I think that scene is really funny, and it also contains a great scene where he's flipping through the channels, and every channel is either about someone dying or someone's hands moving around, so like he can't escape the thought at all. That's a, a whole sequence that I really enjoyed. I wish the movie had gone into that physical comedy more. Again, here we are spoofing, right? Either decide, are we going to spoof this or are we going to embrace the drama of it a little more? We've talked about what's funny. Yeah. This may be the time that we now have this conversation. Trip. what do you find is the unfunniest parts of this movie? So I think the unfunniest part of this movie is anything having to do with Jessica Elba who's the girl next door who Devin Sawa is in love with. And that is not to say, I think Jessica Alba is really great in this movie. I think she is doing her best with a part that makes no sense. And that suddenly Devin Sawa shows up at her door all bloody and bruised. And she immediately is on top of him. It feels very much like some sort of male fantasy idea. And then her entire part, even though they keep trying to enforce to us that she is this like strong, independent, smart woman. She writes her poetry and her music, but at every turn, she just becomes this floozy to the point at the end where you get, where like her clothes just get ripped off for no reason. And she's a damsel in distress. And I think she's really good. Just the part is so aggravating to me. She can't quite escape the script's way of dealing with that character. There is no logic to her character. Throughout this entire movie, it makes zero sense that this individual would have any interest in Devin Sawa's character. 
again, if you want to spoof it and you want to go all out of her as like the floozy, that is awesome. Like you like, go ahead and do that and go a hundred percent in that way. But the film's afraid to go a hundred percent in that way. And then just treats her, treats her really badly throughout the whole movie. It's a weird thing. And yeah, that you they set her up as she is this rocker. You know, she's a bass player. She's writing her lyrics. They're doing this. And clearly she's lived next door to Devin Sawa for Mm-hmm. A long time. But he's also afraid to talk to her. So, like, at yes. first you think, is she, like, the hot popular girl who, you know, is a way above him in social class? But that doesn't seem to be true. Well, the school, the school element of this movie in general is, like, almost non-existent except to get them to a school dance. They make yeah. a comment at one point that Devin Sawa basically just doesn't go to school. Like, he just doesn't right. show up. You have no idea where Jessica Alba falls in the hierarchy of this high school because there is no interaction with the high school to some extent. It's it's a mess all around that. And um, I wish this movie made me appreciate her comedic abilities a lot more than maybe I had seen before. Maybe I've just missed most of Jessica Alba's career. I don't know. Maybe we'll keep discovering stuff about her. I wonder if part of the problem with Jessica Alba, which does happen with several other actors and i'm not saying she's maybe necessarily as good as some of these other performers Mm -hmm. or anything of that but there does seem to be in hollywood the idea of if you are a certain level of attractiveness you are just treated like you are that certain level of attractiveness and we're not really going to help and give you anything other than that and jessica alba especially with this part feels like that is what this movie is doing Mm there they are not really helping her in the script or in the direction to give her character anything other than very attractive, you know, romantic interest who will eventually become the damsel in distress. Yeah, that that's, is it. Exa- that's exactly it. And it, it's aggravating. What about you, Ross? Is there anything else that you want to highlight here? So there is a scene at one point in this movie uh, where there is a neighbor to Devin Sawa, Randy, who's played by Jack Noseworthy, who is this metal guy, a little older than them, and has this massive truck. They end up showing up at a memorial for these two twins, the tw- these twins who were murdered by mm-hmm. clearly Devin Sawa's hand. And he proceeds to try to pick up a woman at this memorial. Everything about it is super uncomfortable. From the, I'm just going to try to pick up somebody at a random memorial, to her talking about why she feels guilty, which is legitimately uncomfortable about how she Because they tried to pick her up maybe for a threesome they're not sure and she rejected them it was a double date that she seemed to maybe misunderstand that it was like (laughs) her and somebody else i don't know and she's mean to them and then the whole scene is just uncomfortable i liked the scene i i kind of enjoyed the scene just because it was ridiculous and i think jack noseworthy is really good in this movie he brings a lot of heart to this part and so i really enjoyed this moment with him and then he gets paired off with Vivica A. Fox for the rest of the movie and they are really great together too but I he has a line delivery um with her that I don't know if he's trying to be funny or if he's just really stupid but that really made me laugh um I enjoyed this scene I didn't find it I guess as uncomfortable as you did 
understandable. And it, again, it, it just, for me, just didn't work. But I agree with you on Jack Noseworthy in general in the movie. I think he's very fun. And I like that, to some extent, where this movie also is kind of funny is they try to have these stereotype things that just fall flat. Like his yeah. big thing initially towards the beginning of the movie is he listens to tons of heavy metal. So it's like, well, who would know tons of things about the devil? The guy who listens to heavy metal. And Jack Noseworthy's like, dude, I listen to heavy metal. It doesn't have to do with like, you know, no, I don't know what the heck to tell you. Like, what do you want from me? You know, Maybe a smarter, you know, post-Columbine comment there than, than they initially intended, right? That, that just yeah. because you like heavy metal doesn't mean that you are an evil person. Remember, idle hands are the devil's playthings are really just a metaphor. It doesn't actually mean <laughs> anything. It doesn't, it doesn't go to anything, which I he, also He does, though. Was- I, I do have to mention, he does... I think it's in that memorial scene. He drops one or two uh, gay slurs in there. That, yeah. You know, like that, anything else, it aged the movie. And, you know, I don't want to apologize for it's 1999 and people talked a different way. But, you know, it always, always rubs me the wrong way. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So, Trip, uh, our audience has now heard what we think of this movie. Uh, now it's time to play uh, what I can only assume is our audience's favorite home game, which is talking about uh, the critic and audience reactions to this movie. So first, obviously, Rotten Tomatoes. This movie came out April 30th, 1999. Mm-hmm. What do you think the average Rotten Tomatoes critic score is for Idle Hands? You know, with the way that the country was at this point, I imagine that this film became a punching bag whether fairly or unfairly, I'm going to say it's, you know, definitely a rotten movie, probably down in uh, the 38, 39 range. You are much kinder to this movie than critics were. Oh, wow. Um, it is a 15%. Oh, that's, on that's rough. That is. Yeah, very yeah. rough. But uh, I found two reviews here to highlight here. Roger Ebert, our friend Roger Ebert here, mm-hmm. uh, two and a half stars. Not bad. That's, that's yeah. you know. Yeah. Idle Hands samples other teen horror movies like a video DJ with a tape deck, exhibiting high spirits and a crazed comic energy. It doesn't quite work, but it goes down swinging with a disembodied hand. Okay, I don't know if, if I really think it goes down swinging, I think. Uh, it never quite winds up enough, but you know. Yeah, and then we have Mark Savlov from the Austin Chronicle who gave it three out of five stars that says, once you get past the fact that this is sophomoric humor at its best and there's not going to be any hidden moral messages as there are in so many teen-centric flicks these days, it's all a pleasantly silly, gleefully un-PC carnival ride, albeit one with plenty of cleaver action. Yeah, I, I can see that too. What one thing I didn't note, didn't mention. Maybe I'm opening a can of worms here, Ross. I I don't need to. And this is where your and my age gap, I think, is going to pl- come into play. But there was a lot of this movie that, and maybe it's the mix of genres. I don't know where it just felt like it was trying to be an R-rated Disney Channel original movie. Like it has, it has that like fake TV look that those movies have. And I'll be honest, I've seen like two or three. They are not my thing. Like I don't get that world. I know that you can talk about decoms for hours and I don't want to open that can of worms. There's that artificiality to those movies, you know, and this has that style that 
feel to it, but just with marijuana and sex jokes and some some violence that I think that might be what that review was getting at there. Trip, I, I just want you to know, because I can't let this go. Unbeknownst probably to you, in 1999, there was a Disney Channel original movie called Can of Worms. You just have to know okay. that that is a thing that exists. As you kept saying, I, I don't, don't want to open this can of worms. I just have to, this exact year, there is a movie called Can of Worms on the Disney Channel. Okay, there we go. I, I see what you're saying in terms of the production value and how mm-hmm. everything is. That's why I said I'm surprised it's not like an MTV Films because it does right. kind of feel like a a, a very teen kind mm-hmm. of low budget. That was maybe the route that they were going in this mixed match of, of genres. Absolutely. Um, so the good users at Letterboxd, they also have rated this movie. Obviously, people have rated it. Um, what do you think the average score is on Letterboxd? So the fact that I knew nothing about this movie coming in makes me think that it's not a movie that people are watching a lot, but maybe I'm wrong. I really have no idea because I can see where, like, if you're a stoner comedy person, maybe this works a lot better than than the rest of us. But is this in the twos, like a 2.6? So uh, this time you are actually a little low. The okay. answer is a three point one. Wow, that's 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 over the 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 three point line there. I'm surprised. Yeah, so. it, and looking at the letterbox stats, um, over forty two thousand people have watched it or marked it as watched, um, and nine uh, nearly nine thousand people have liked it. So. I, I think you are correct in the sense of I do think this is much more of a cult movie in general. Yeah, there's probably a nostalgia factor too that maybe people have that that I'm just not getting from this movie. It's also not again, it's not on a streaming service. It's not mm-hmm. like you kind of have to rent it, which is how I watched it. I rented on your it. full on my full screen DVD that I had to jerry rig my whole TV to get it so that it didn't look you know stretched out. So. Get rid of that motion smoothing. Um, you know, and so, yeah, I, I do think that that's been sort of, cause again, as we, we've already talked about on this episode, I think everything surrounding the time it came out kind of buried this movie. And mm-hmm. then it just kind of has gone the way of the dodo in some respect of like, yeah. you know, it, it just other movies and other teen movies, especially that year took a much more, um, things, but it's been one of these movies that I think kind of has this cult thing because of the people involved because you know there's some humor to it yeah i think that's where it is interesting so so trip weekend of april 30th 1999 the let's see what you would have been doing at this time the other big releases were entrapment Remember that movie, Sean Connery, uh, Sean Connery and, and Catherine Zeta Jones, right? The, yeah, the, them together. So, the, which which I think lives in infamy because that's how they met, and then he presented her her Oscar for Chicago, and just goes Catherine. <laughs> and uh, yes, because they're they're besties. I might have seen this in the theater. I'm pretty sure I have seen it. It seems like the sort of like mindless uh, spy movie that we saw every now and then in the theater. I don't know. Sure. The other the other big movie that year was the was called Edge of Seventeen, but um, wasn't that like a Haley Steinfeld movie from a couple years th- ago? Like, that is that also the, the Edge of Seventeen, th- okay. different movie, D- different, different Edge of Seventeen. Different okay. We're edge not of time 17. traveling. Exactly, not there. Um, the top five that weekend also included movies that we've covered: Life, 
never been kissed and analyze this. Um, the comedies are taking over, Ross. Yeah. Six uh, was 10 Things I Hate About You. And then eight and nine are our past uh, episodes of Lost and Found and Pushing Tin. Okay. So where did this movie open? Do you know? Was that was that in the top 10? Uh, I do not believe so, but I can okay. double check as wow. we are, it, it, as it we are bombed, doing this. But it, it bombed pretty hardly. Yeah, it didn't. It really didn't do. It's got a. It's basically made a little over four million dollars on a twenty-five million dollar budget. <laughs> its opening rough. weekend, it made about one point eight million. So we're not talking about a great things. It was in the top ten. It finished seventh. Actually, okay. nestled. Here we go. Pulling this up. Three through nine were Life at Three, Four has Never Been Kissed, Five Analyze This, Six, Ten Things I Hate About You, Seven is Idle Hands, Eight is Lost and Found, Nine is Pushing Tin. Wow, that's quite the lineup there, I think, of of co- comedies were big in the spring of Absolutely. 1999, as we are learning, as we're slowly moving our way through through that spring. <laughs> 11 is Out of Towners, and 13 is Forces of Nature. So again, okay. all of these movies that we've been covering, um, yeah. still kind of all around. And then yeah. there's poor office space. Relegated, relegated to the uh, VHS bargain bin. So. Don't worry, Idle Hands will be there probably by the next week. I'm like, sure. So yes, uh, Ross, if I'm sitting down and I'm watching Idle Hands, is there something that maybe you recommend to go with it? A good double feature that we can make here. So I decided to pick what I consider maybe one of the greatest horror comedy movies of all time, and that is 1981's An American Werewolf in London. I think this movie works perfectly with this because just like Idle Hands, a major plot point is a best friend who dies and then comes back reanimated to some extent to have conversations with our main character and try to convince them of things. That movie's a much better movie. Much better movie all around. American Werewolf in London is a truly fantastic film. It is Rick Baker's makeup. Won him an Oscar for, for the makeup in it. Uh, David Naughton. The first Oscar, I think, for, for makeup. It I might believe. be. Or the first competitive Oscar. For yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it I've never seen it. Feeling. I'm oh. kind of ashamed to say I've never seen an American Werewolf in Paris. Uh, I think this in is London. the second time now you've... I'm sorry, an American Werewolf in London. Paris was later on, right? Don't see uh, that. I've never seen either of them, but uh, it, it should go on the watch list if it's not already. I feel. I was going to say, I feel like I it. did mention this movie already on this uh, podcast. I, I think when we talked about uh, Rick Baker and life, I believe. That's, we, uh, that's maybe We it. spent a long time talking about him there. So, yes. Yeah. So um, it is definitely, though, I think with this movie in terms of where you want to pair it, it is a movie that better understands how to balance the horror elements mm-hmm. with the comedy elements. And again, has that kind of zombified best friend who comes back um, in terms of that. So yeah, I would I would definitely say uh, check that out instead. You've piqued my interest, Ross. So ah, I, I try, yeah. I try. Trip, what about you? Um, what is uh, one movie that you would recommend so to watch with this? I'm going to go the the obvious route here because I really waffled between some some films that kind of fit and didn't really. Um, but I think this movie is so obviously greenlit post Scream. The studio really wanted another Scream. I think especially about the first 10 minutes of this movie seemed like a Scream ripoff. 
and Scream does everything that this movie does better. So I would say follow this up with Wes Craven's 1996 film Scream, you know, Nev Campbell, Drew Barrymore, Courtney Cox, uh, David Arquette. I don't know how I really need to to push Scream on any of you. Uh, it's a seminal film. I think for for anybody who was in high school in the late 90s, even those of us who scoffed at mainstream, but it was, I don't know, something off the mainstream a little bit too, I think. And um, it was a movie I loved all through high school. I still love. I think it's still a seminal movie for a lot of generations afterwards and and does a lot of this better than Idle Hands does. Absolutely. I also have to put out a special mention because I tried this week to fit another movie in to recommend here, but I've never seen it. But I've always wanted to, and it's it seems like a quintessential trip pick. So as those of you who are sitting there like, why aren't you suggesting Mad Love with Peter Lorre <laughs> from 1935, uh, in which Peter Lorre plays a pianist who gets hand replacements and they are a killer's hands i believe and he starts he murdering is people. a mad scientist he's a surgeon okay. who is obsessed with with an actress and he replaces her husband's hands oh. with the hands of a knife murderer i have seen gotcha. this movie you've se- okay so you've seen it so you're you're showing me up double here Ross. i know it I looked at my letterbox because I remembered I had seen it. I wasn't mm-hmm. as big of a fan of it, but okay. again, I, I haven't watched it in a while. The other movie, by the way, that I'm sure people might be shouting out is one of Oliver Stone's first movies called The Hand, which oh. starred Michael Caine, in which okay. his hand gets – like he's in an accident, which his hand gets n- – disembodied off of him and then his hand comes back and starts murdering people who knew this was such a trope that that idle hands was, was following through so. i know, you um, know i've never seen guess. mad love i couldn't recommend it but i had to shout out that i know that there's another movie <laughs> with this same premise uh that i'm sure i would love i would De- love even more definitely peter laurie how could you ever be upset seeing mm-hmm. peter laurie yeah uh, so trip you're staring at those those five stars on letterbox they're gray at the moment you're going to fill them in green with with your final letterbox rating what would you give idle hands ross i went into this episode not knowing how i could rate this movie i didn't have a star rating in mind somehow i think i now both love and hate it even more in equal parts so i'm really confused as to what to give it um, I think I'm just going to go down the middle. I think two and a half stars. I think when this movie works, it really works. It's just not a complete enough, uh, a complete enough thing. But it's also the kind of movie that I feel if it was on TNT or MTV and I was flipping through, I might go through a couple commercial breaks. I might watch a couple sections of it. Um, again, I think as a slasher film, the kills are are really fun. I'm not that far off. I gave it a three. And I think okay. it's because I, I also find it the same as you. I find it kind of an easy watch. It goes down fine. I would say, like, it's not a movie that I wouldn't say, don't watch it. it, mm-hmm. it like, yeah, it's it's a pretty easy watch. And there are stuff about it that definitely don't work. But I think the movie is very self-aware enough to understand that this is like, you should not be thinking hard about this movie. No. And if you are, you're, you're, you clearly shouldn't have started it. Like... So I will say the original ending one star. So there oof. we go. So that's an improvement right there. And uh, there we go. Already a star and a half for changing the ending. <laughs> for changing the ending, <laughs> even if the ending is still highly, uh, highly gross. In its Very deflating, Jessica Alba. But yes, it's also just deflating. 
She throws yeah. the knife. The original ending has the stairway to heaven come down for the two guys, and it looks like the old like um, Windows ninety five screensaver of like the the shapes that would move in diagonal. I'm making the gesture on Zoom here, which yes. obviously our listeners don't Cannot care see. about. But in this yeah. audio medium, I will say <laughs> if you see the tra- I did look up the trailer at one point. Uh-huh. That stairway to heaven is in the trailer. Okay, so and there you I go. Remember- so you can watch that. I remember thinking to myself as I watched the movie, where is this stairway to heaven thing? Yeah, I don't oh, it's, it's it. some bad special effects. So, yeah. Um, yeah. Are, um, are we getting some more bad special effects next week, Ross? What are you, uh, what are you showing me next week? Uh, Trip, we are not doing some bad special effects. In fact, we are going to the romantic comedy genre. Ooh, I love romantic comedies, Ross. Uh, you know, then I think I think you might be uh, having a good time next week because we are doing a double feature of two movies with Julia Roberts, and that is oh. Notting Hill and Runaway Bride. Notting Hill at the moment, as the time we're recording this, is available to stream on Hulu or to mm-hmm. rent on Amazon, Apple TV, or YouTube. Runaway Bride, not streaming anywhere. You're going to have to rent it either on Amazon, Apple TV, or YouTube. Or, as always, you could look for it in physical media form at your local library and see if yeah. it's available. Uh, so Notting Hill, I have seen many times. I love Notting Hill. I can't remember if I saw it in the theaters in 99 or when I came across it, but that is a quintessential it is on TV. I will watch the whole movie. I think it's one of Julia Roberts' best movies. I can't wait to talk about that. Runaway Bride, I have no idea. I know it was all over the news in the summer of 99 because it was Julia Roberts and Richard Gere back together, right? Yes. And so I'm guessing that she's a bride who runs away from the wedding. I don't know whether she runs away from Richard Gere or to Richard Gere. You know, maybe Richard Gere is. I don't know, the minister. I don't know exactly what's... Maybe Richard Gere is the runaway bride, and it's all kind of a big, big misunderstanding. But I am assuming that she is running, and hijinks ensue, and uh, in the end, she and Richard Gere end up together again, because they are America's favorite movie couple of the 90s. Father Father Richard Gere is now just in my that head. Would be, that would um, be something. Not that I want to ruin our next week's episode a bit, but I also have not seen Runaway Bride, but I have seen Notting Hill. And I can tell you, I am, I am 110% with you. Uh, oh, yeah. There will be tons of horse and hound talk next week. <laughs> so get excited. Horses and hounds. Horses, horses so. and hounds, Black Beauty, their favorite actress, and then Julia Roberts' character right underneath there. Um, so uh, join us next week as we have a Julia Roberts double feature, Notting Hill, and Runaway Bride. Some d- delightful fall movies, I Ex- think, right there. Scary season abound. Ex- ex- get, get your hot cider and your warm blanket and, and spend some time with Julia Roberts. Have some uh, in the meantime, In the meantime, you can find me on uh, whatever social media platform you want. Uh, at tripburton13. You can also find me on Letterboxd, putting my thoughts about all these movies out there. And you could find me at all the social platforms, Twitter, X, I guess it's X, we should definitely be calling it, Letterboxd, uh, at R. Bratton. You could find the show on Twitter, Blue Sky, Instagram, uh, at ATTCpod, or you can email us at a trip through comedy at gmail.com. Don't forget, Trip has two Ps. Trip, we're actually starting to get some emails. 
We have is- gotten a couple emails. It's exciting. I did offer the first person who emailed us. I offered them a uh, a blue sky invite code. So that is that uh, is because we have some of those. So email us and maybe you'll get one too. Maybe you could come join us on Blue Sky also, where we we both are and the show is. So absolutely. Our theme music is So Alive Instrumental by John Worthy Music. You can find his work wherever you listen to music or on the free music archive. And as always, we will see you farther along down the road. Well, my work here is done. Time for the ritualistic sex. You coming?